Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Would you guys please pray once more with me? Uh, Lord Jesus, we come to your word as a needy people, as strong or as confident, as comfortable as we seem to be. Your word comes and reminds us in this wonderfully overwhelming way of how weak and finite we are but how wonderful and amazing the God who stands behind Scripture, the God who has chosen to love us through Jesus Christ, is. So we pray today as we look at your word that that tension of being sinners and yet saints by grace through faith, that it changes the way we engage our emotions, changes the way we speak and preach to ourselves and to others, and satisfies us deeply in the provision you've given us in Jesus Christ in your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we have two weeks left in the book of Proverbs. Um, We have been in this for 39 weeks so far. And uh, there's really four parts to the book of Proverbs, kind of four literary segments. And we've spent the first 39 weeks in what are the first two of those. The first segment is the Proverbs of Solomon. And that includes his prologue, the first nine chapters but it stretches all the way to chapter 24. And then beginning in chapter 25, we enter a new portion of the book of Proverbs where these are the Proverbs of Solomon, which were actually assembled later in Israel's history by King Hezekiah's men. And so these are kind of like Solomon's greatest hits. These are what stood the test of time that long after Solomon was gone, these are the wisdom um, uh, Proverbs that the people of Israel long looked to for support and comfort. And we're gonna look at the next two portions today and the following week. And these are distinct because these are the two portions of Proverbs which are not written by King Solomon. Today, we're going to encounter our new best friend, Agur. And next week, we're gonna see the wisdom of King Lemuel. And these two chapters are wonderful conclusions to the book of Proverbs. And whether we know it or not, it's the conclusion that we need to have. Because today, uh, specifically, Agur is going to teach us how to apply wisdom. For 39 weeks, we've looked at God's faithfulness to us in his word. 39 weeks, we've seen that just as God has woven this world together where the sun rises and the tides recede and grass grows, so God has given wisdom to his people, which is faithful and reliable, and it causes us to flourish. But just like how you feel prepared for any test when you're at home and the instructor gives you the paper when you show up, we often know that we forget everything so quickly. And so what happens when the wisdom that we've learned in our devotions or heard preached in church or practiced in community group seems obscure, when acting on it seems difficult or even hard, or worse perhaps if the God of wisdom seems to stand far off from us. In other words, What does it look like to preach wisdom to yourself when you feel weary, when you feel weak, and when you feel 
foolish. We live in a world where there are two kinds of people. There are those who are uh, keenly aware of their emotional state and encouraged to follow that wherever it takes them. And then there are others who like to repress emotions and listen to only what is true on the outside of us. But the Bible actually presents a better solution than these two poles, and that's a way in which we engage our emotions honestly while also examining God's truth which exists apart from us. And when we understand how those two things, that is our subjective experience and the objective truth of God's word works, we find something which neither exhausts us in pursuing something that seems to be always changing or crushes us with a truth that never fully seems comfortable. In other words, what we're going to learn today is how to preach the gospel to yourself when your experience, your trial, or your exhaustion might cause you to feel that God is far from you. How do you remind yourself of the promise of God's wisdom when it seems what is most real is the promise of sin? How do you discover a refuge, a shield is what we'll see today, inside of God's love when it seems this world is a dangerous place for your heart? And Agur opens up this chapter today with kind of a uh, biographical sketch, as it were. And what he wants us to see are a few things. First, he wants us to see his emotional distress. Second, it assumes that the people Agur is sharing wisdom with are about, they are on the verge of turning away from God's wisdom and taking matters into their own hand, of distrusting God's word. But lastly, he's going to land the plane of his emotions inside the hangar of God's truth, but it's also a truth that engulfs the reality and acknowledges the the truth of our emotions. And we're gonna look at this process of preaching to ourselves in three parts. We're gonna see first in verses one through three, the freedom to feel. Then in verses four through six, we're going to see the space to consider. And then in verses seven through nine, we're going to see faith to hold on. So I'm gonna read our passage for us today and you can see if you can kind of track those divisions I just mentioned. And we're gonna read from Proverbs 30, beginning in verse one. The words of Agur, son of Jaka, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him, Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So let's begin today by examining our first point, which is in these first three verses of Proverbs 30, and this is where we encounter the freedom to feel. And in this passage, we see both the experience of Augur's emotion 
and also the causes of it. And the experience of agar is a really weighty thing, isn't it? Did you notice what he said? He says, twice, I am weary, I am weary. He says, I am worn out. And on top of that, if you look at what's behind what follows in verse three, we see that on top of being weary and weary and worn out, he feels stupid, he feels ignorant, he feels foolish, and he feels woefully alone. Have you ever been there? Last week, we preached on anger, and I talked about how it's God's joke on preachers to preach on things that he's going to bring to bear in their life that week. So last week, I was keenly aware of places of my anger. And this week, when I sat down to write this sermon, I was overwhelmed with a sense of weariness. The early part of the week, I was so excited for this text because it ends in this wonderful hope of God's eternal abiding truth, this refuge. But as the week wore on and the latter part of the week came, I couldn't get past the weight of these emotions of feeling weary and worn out. For many of us, if we're honest, this seems like more of a consistent profession we might have in our life, doesn't it? But there's this really unique tension in this passage. Did you see it? The first is that Agar isn't refusing to acknowledge his emotional state. He's laying it all out there in a way which is really intense. Like, can you imagine if Johnny got up here and opened up singing? He's like, today I'm gonna teach you a new song. The first line is, I'm too stupid to be a man. We would be like, that's a little intense. (laughs) But yeah, this is what Agar does. But did you see to whom He brings all of the weight of his true emotions. He brings it to God. I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God. For many of us with our emotions, we can do one of two things. First, we willingly and honestly bring our emotions to others without ever bringing those emotions to God. We bring our frustration, our exhaustion, our weariness, our pain, to social media, even to our Christian community. But the first place God wants us to see where we bring the angst and pain of real emotions is to the Lord. Why? Because he cares for us. There's this thing where some of us are prone. We know that God is sovereign. It's in the title of our church for Pete's sake. Like we know that God knows what's in our hearts. And so we sometimes say, God knows And sometimes there's places of exhaustion where that's the only prayer we have. But what's interesting is in Matthew 6, where Jesus is going to teach his church how to pray, you know what he says? He says, your father in heaven already knows what you need before you ask. Pray this way. God knows what's in your heart and he wants you to bring it to him. He doesn't want you to passively sit back and just say, God is sovereign. God, the king, wants to know. Why? Because in 1 Peter, speaking specifically to pastors, God says this. He says, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God wants your emotions because he cares for you. And it is a good thing. In fact, it is a biblical thing. As we have a members meeting after this, You're going to see that part of our membership covenant that we read to each other is that we do just this, that we bring our emotions to others, that we bear one another's burdens. But it is of primary importance that a believer learns to bring their emotions chiefly to the Lord. 
Because if we're not careful, what can actually happen is if the first time we feel disquieted, weary, and worn out, all we do is run to others, we can cause others to become functional saviors. And that means we will always be disappointed. And that means that they will be crushed by that weight. They are not meant to be God. But to bring these things to the Lord is to bring it before the God who refuses to heal our wounds lightly, who refuses to say, get over it, who doesn't shove his nose at us and say, just man up. It is to bring it to the Jesus who wants you to be painfully honest with him because he cares for you. Do you have a pattern of bringing these emotions to the Lord? The first error is to bring honest emotions to others instead of the Lord. And the second error is to therefore bring dishonest emotions to God. I don't mean to stereotype here, but it is generally men who go to God in prayer in this sort of thoughtless facade. Everything is great. Everything is good. I'm praying because I have to. It helps set me apart as a man of faith. We go to God in faux reverence as if everything is peachy, but behind our relationship to God is weariness, frustration, and fear. And when we do that, when we go before God and refuse to bring to him the pain we carry in our hearts, we might think that God is pleased by our strength, but God is not pleased with your dishonesty. God is not in need of being protected from the emotions that are in your heart. Perhaps you know a man named Jesus who is fully God and fully man. And on the eve when he was betrayed, he went before his father and he didn't say, I know all things, this must happen, let's do it. He wept before his father. Jesus, the one who was born to die, asked his father out of great anxiety if this cup, if the cross could pass from him. But somehow we have thought it Christ-like to refuse to bring those same emotions to our God. Now this doesn't mean that we approach God without any sort of distinction. It's not just throw your complaints before the Lord like you would the angry lady at the DMV. Look at how David models this process in Psalm chapter four. A man after God's own heart. Look at his wrestling match, how the Psalms meets our emotion. Psalm chapter four, verse one. David says, answer me when I call. O God of my righteousness, you've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. You skip to verse four where he continues. He says, be angry, speaking to his own heart, and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. The very next chapter, David models this again. Chapter five, verses one through three. Give, ears to my, give ear to my word, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and I watch. Both of these psalms show David in bringing his honest emotions of anger, distress, and pain to the Lord. And he knowing that he has the favor of God says, listen to me, answer me, give ear to me, give attention to me. But where does he land the plane? 
He lands it in this humble submission to God. He begins to quiet his heart by pouring out his heart before the Lord. And you see this cascade in chapter four where it starts with what is angry and active and slowly cascades into a stillness. He says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your heart and be silent. In chapter five, it says he prepares a sacrifice before the Lord, all of his petitions. He prepares it and he watches. There's this beautiful story in Isaiah chapter 37 where the armies of Assyria are coming to wipe out the people of Israel. And Sennacherib, who is the baddest bad guy, he is the herald of all destruction, sends this letter to King Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, which is just, it's like the kind of, I'm gonna grind your bones to make my bread letter that we're, we learn to fear in movies. And Hezekiah gets this letter and he does something fantastic with it. He takes this letter, which causes him great pain, great fear, great anxiety, and he runs to the house of the Lord and he lays the letter open before God and prays. In other words, our God is big enough to bring your letters to him and to step back and watch. To pour out, as the Psalms say, our complaint to the Lord and step back and say, but you are king and I will sit here in my silence. I will have wrestled with my emotions honestly and faithfully and now I'm just going to watch. And this is such a key thing for us to understand because we get the experiences of weariness and being worn out. We get anxiety and fear and frustration, but there is a cause in here that Agur helps us to see, and we see the cause of these emotions in verses two through three. Surely I'm too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. Sarah has that on our fridge for some reason. <laughs> I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. It is exhausting. What we see here is this picture of trying to get knowledge and he's failing. It is exhausting to think about life in this world and try to answer it apart from the God who created all of it. There are many times where we're frustrated when we feel we can't find a way forward. There are many times where we're frustrated despite our best efforts where things seem to have failed or we've done something and realized it is a poor decision and we have done it wrong. How many times do we see real conflicts, real challenges in relationships, in parenting, in politics, in discipleship, and the number one thing we say is, I'm not wise enough for this. I don't know what to do. What do you want from me? But here, Solomon takes a crisis of knowing how to think and act and live. Or not Solomon, excuse me, Agur. takes a crisis of knowing of how we think and act in a broken world and he changes it into a crisis of relationship. Did you see that? He ends with, I have no understanding of the Holy One. He's moved from principles to a person. When we feel exacerbated and we feel confused, the biggest question is not what we don't know, for you don't know much. There is much we will never know. The question for the Christian is what we do know. And this is where the process of preaching wisdom to the gospel becomes a distinctly Christian exercise. As Christians, we know our hearts. We know the weariness of trying to make sense of a broken world. And the only way to do that without being crushed 
by the uncertainties is to realize at some point the wisdom of a God who is bigger than this world. This is the God who rules, who creates, who reigns over all things, and the God who has entered into this covenant promise with his people, the God Yahweh. And so after we give ourselves the freedom to feel in our hearts, we move and we give ourselves our second point, which is a space to consider this great God. God wants you to be honest with yourself, but then he wants you to take those emotions and frame it up with what we know to be true about who God is. And in this point, Agur kind of interrupts the weak man, the man who's declaring. He interrupts this dialogue with kind of this rhetorical series of questions. We see this in verse four. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. And there's a distinct shift in verses one through three in verse four. And if you look at your Bible, you see that shift. We ought to have a similar shift in our own conversations with ourselves. I know one pastor who says when he's counseling people, he says there's often a time to listen to yourself, but there comes a time where you need to start preaching to yourself. And here, Agur acknowledges his feelings and now he begins to preach to himself. He reminds himself of these hypothetical questions which he as the recipient and we as the reader are meant to know the answer to. If you're familiar with scripture, this line of questioning might remind you of something else we see in the book of Job. In the book of Job, Job, the main character, is this, although we would argue that perhaps God might be the main character and that's the point of Job's wisdom. That's his tough lesson. Job is this righteous man who's afflicted in many ways And he and his friends are trying to discern why. And they have all of these chit-chats and threads and comments about theology, righteousness, causes and effects. But after dozens of chapters of four knuckleheads trying to go back and forth of making sense of life from their perspective, God finally speaks. And look at what God says in Job 38, verses one through seven. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Do you hear the similar words that Agur is using here? Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. That's the exact same question. Or who stretched the line upon it, which is the earth? Or what were its base on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And God continues, if you have your Bible open to that, for two chapters of asking these questions: Where were you? When did you do this? And you guys know, whether it was your mom or maybe your spouse or your teacher, when they ask questions and they're questions you know you shouldn't provide an answer to, even if you think you know the answer. And so God lays this on Job and Job responds. Job who has said many, 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 many words throughout the course of the book. And this is his response in Job 40, 
verses three through five. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What answer shall I give you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. God's goal in the midst of Job's trial was that Job would realize that God is wise beyond measure, even if from our perspective, it doesn't seem to make sense. Where we wrestle to understand with clarity what is going on. That God is supreme in his care and purposes, and the safest place for Job to be is in clinging to this God, in saying, I don't know what this is, but I know who he is. And so long as we do that, we are right where God wants us to be. But what I love about wisdom, specifically here in Proverbs, is we'll notice how the wisdom of Agur is opposite the story of Job. The story of Job starts with four guys thinking they could figure this out on their own, monologuing with each other for 38 chapters, and then God humbles them. But here, Agur comes to God confessing his lack. And then he humbles himself and praises God's power and God's wisdom. One commentator said the door to wisdom is low. You must stoop to get into it. Job is a story about learning wisdom the hard way. But here Agur models in his first confession what it took Job 40 chapters to learn. That it is safe and okay to bring our unknowns to the God who has made himself known. And it's no Surprised that here in the waning pages of Proverbs, this is what the wise man does. Because do you remember where Proverbs started? In Proverbs 1, verse 7, what is our frame of reference for knowledge? Chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. To be wise biblically is to humble ourselves in light of who God is. To preach wisdom to ourselves, we honestly consider our weaknesses and our conditions, but then we consider the God who is always faithful, even if we can't understand how. And again, these three questions of who gives way to the paradigm of a relationship. The questions are meant to point us to the name of the Lord and his son, and Agur says to himself something that God asks Job and I think is a helpful question for you to ask. Surely you know. Surely you know. When we have a baptism here in a little bit, the joy of having baptism in this public profession is that we get to go to that convert and we say, in times of hardship, in times of confusion, in times of pain, in times of weariness, in times of being worn out, surely you know. Surely you know the God who stands behind you. And look where he goes next. After pointing us to the Lord and to his son, Agur reaches this climax in verses five and six where he says this. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Here is a God who is above all things, a God who has created all things, a God who fastened the earth and the heavens, and while you might feel stupid, ignorant, alone, and without knowledge, the good news of the God of the Bible is that he is a God who speaks. 
He's a God who move to, moves towards us in what we do not know to declare to us who it is we should know. You see, to think that you have to justify everything in this world with yourself as the center is an exhausting and a crushing idea. To think that you have to seek out every possible answer to every possible scenario to justify everything in the world can only make us weary. But here is the freedom of acknowledging the weight of this life, of trying to discern with all of the things that God has given to us, but coming to rest in submission, not to ourselves at the center, but to God at the center. We don't need to know everything to have peace. We only need to know the God who is trustworthy in the midst of everything. Everybody wants this, but where do we see this God? How do we know if this God is trustworthy? He points us to his name and he points us to his word. His word, which depending upon your Bible translations that's there, the ESV translates it as uh, proves true. Other translations say it's tested. Other translations say it's pure. The Hebrew word carries all of that in it. His word, which in every way, regardless of our experience, which is able to shelter us, which is a shield and a refuge, is his word. And we see that in the sun. See, Agur in verse five or verse four points us to the name of the Lord and to his son. And Agur is probably referring to himself in this sense, that he is the one who speaks the oracle of God. But having the whole Bible, we see God's divine intention behind the sun in this text, don't we? What do you need to consider when you cry out to God in weariness and weakness? We consider the sun who is God's reliable word. In verse four, Agar quotes a, pro, uh, uh, a passage of Deuteronomy where he says, who has ascended into heaven and come back down? The Apostle Paul picks up this exact same thought in Romans chapter 10, verses six and nine, when he says this. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Who is the one who ascended and came back down? Who is the one who gives us hope when we are weary? Jesus Christ, the Son. Edgar asks, who is it who gathers the wind in his fists and wraps the waves in the garment? Look at what the disciples said after Jesus calmed a storm on Galilee. In Matthew 8, verse 27, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Who gathers the wind and wraps the sea and can speak peace to us in the midst of our turmoil? Christ the Son. Edgar asks, who established the ends of the earth? 
Paul in Colossians chapter one gives us a glimpse into the creation account when he says this in verses 15 and 17. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Who is the one who has established the earth and offers a secure shelter in the midst of the quakes of this life? Christ, the son. Agur says, every word of the Lord proves true. The author of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 1 verse 3, or 1, 1 through 3, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Who is the word by whom the Father vindicates all of his true, loving, enduring, saving promises and power? Christ the Son. What does it look like to preach the gospel to yourself? It looks at the Son and realizes that in the person of Jesus Christ, God is reliable and trustworthy because Jesus has proven the promises of God true. Jesus has come and died for the debt of chaos and disorder and pain in this world. Jesus has come so that those who feel weighted and ruined by the world can be washed clean by his blood. Jesus has come so that those who feel far off can be brought near by the hand of their savior. Jesus has come so that we might have Peace in the word of faith. Have you come to this son? When we feel insignificant, weary, and confused, we find refuge in God's word by running to the son and saying, I don't know much, but I know what Jesus has done to prove the reliability of God's love for me. That if I stand in Christ, I stand secure. Though the maces swing, he is my shield. Though the waves roar, he is my refuge. And when we found refuge in Christ the Son, the true ultimate word of God, then we turn to God's written word. His written wisdom, the wisdom that Agur here is upholding for us. And we say, we know this is true. Why? Because we've seen the son. The word became flesh. We can say, I know this world is disorienting, but I know this God is faithful. The wisdom of God, the precepts of scripture would mean nothing if Christ had not proved the truth of God's word in his life death, and resurrection. And I love how Agur gets ahead of our emotions here. You see how he did this in uh, chapter 30, verses five and six. He says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. You see, he knows that when we feel burdened and when God feels distant, 
that we will often do one of two things. First, we often add to God's word promises which the Bible itself doesn't make. How many of you have been counseled when you feel anxious and you feel weary and someone just says, it'll get better? Where do you see that in scripture without it assuming death and resurrection in the new heavens and new earth? That's a promise scripture doesn't make. And sometimes we take that and we think, well, if I say the right prayer, if I worship in the right places, then all of the things which make me anxious, all of the things which make me weary, all of the things which make me worn out will finally go away. And when we do those things and that doesn't happen, we are so incredibly disappointed that God is not a genie. But the Bible doesn't make that promise. What he does promise is something better. And that's that God will be with you in the midst of the hardships of life. Or secondly, we look at God's word and we say that it's a lie. We'll look at the promise of peace in this world through its consumables, through its vices, through its beauty, and we'll say, I don't believe God's word to be true, but I believe the promise of sin. This is the very first sin. This is exactly what Satan did in Eden with Adam and Eve, and he convinced them that God was holding out, and what they ended up doing is they proved themselves to be liars, as they had to say, God is holding out. God is not faithful. God's word is not trustworthy. His king is not pure. And they proved themselves to be liars. You see, the task of the Christian is not to rest in blind faith where we trust the promises of God when it seems silly. The task of the Christian is to look at the cross of Jesus with eyes wide open and say, his word is always true because I've seen it on the cross. It looks at those in the church who sit right here with you, who come to you in your distress, and they say, I've been there. And God in his word, God in his wisdom is sufficient. I've tasted it. It's pure. We gather together to encourage one another so that when we are weary, we could say, I was once too. And every word proved true. What we've seen so far in Proverbs 30 is that when we are weak and weary, we can run to God's word. But even in running to God's word, we are prone to doubt its truthfulness to us. And this is where Agur teaches us to pray one of the most dangerous parts of this passage. And this is our final point this morning. Faith to hold on. Read with me Proverbs 30, verses seven through nine. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So there's something really unique here. And this is the only prayer recorded in the book of Proverbs. And here in light of all of the things that Agur is acknowledging about his weaknesses and all of the truthfulness of God's word, where does it lead him to pray and what does he pray for? He prays for a desperate reliance on God. He follows up what we saw in verse six and he asks God to put far from him falsehood and lying. He knows that when the people he's preaching to are going to ignore his wisdom, 
Or when we feel alone in the midst of our trials, we are prone to invent false promises in the name of the gospel or believe the false gospels of the world. And so to pray to remove from me falsehood and lying is a wonderful prayer. Wouldn't it be so amazing if you could pray that prayer and God would take every desire in you to distrust his word and throw it away? How wonderful. Like the old hymn says, on that day when free from sinning, oh, can you imagine that? Where we can only ever know God is true and faithful. What a day that will be. But did you notice how he assumed that God would work in you to put away falsehood and lying? and to promote reliance on his word. Look at verses eight and nine. Remove from me falsehood and lying. We want that, but look at what he prays for next. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. It is incredibly natural to pray against poverty in our own lives. And the Bible assumes that those who are in poverty might have a greater temptation to sin, that sometimes in your poverty, we disbelieve God's word and we steal things, not relying on God to provide for us. But how many of us are bold enough to say to the Lord, give me not riches? The faith to hold on to the truth of the gospel is a faith that realizes that it is sometimes God's merciful kindness to us to strip away, to withhold, to dash, and to break the rich comforts of the world so that we might see the source of our true comfort and daily provision. Jesus, in teaching us to pray in Matthew 6, 11, says, give us this day our daily bread. If we're honest, no one wants to pray that prayer. Why? Because we don't want to do it daily. We want to pray for a cupboard full of three months supply of bread. (laughs) We want to see the storehouses for us. But here Jesus says, pray for the daily provision. Pray that you would be reliant upon me. When life is good, when banks are full, when relationships are robust, when comfort is near, when we are full, our hearts often deny the Lord. Not because we become heretics, but because we look at all of the comfort, all of the provisions, all of the goodness stored up for us, and we say, Where is the Lord? Who is the Lord? I have no lack. In Exodus 5, Moses goes before the most powerful man in the known world, Pharaoh. And he says to Pharaoh, the Lord wants his people back. And in Pharaoh's luxurious arrogance, look at how he responds. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. 
Most of us, generally, don't draft ourselves as Pharaoh in the character of Scripture's story. But here to be one who is unaware of the way in which comforts of this world pull us from God, we often profess what Pharaoh professes. We just saw earlier in Proverbs that the most painful and lonely place to be is processing this world apart from the comfort of our Savior King who loves us and came for us in Jesus. So how might God spare you from that burden? How might God speak into your weariness and your worn outness, into your exhaustion and your anxiety, into your pain and into your weaknesses? By sometimes stripping away our comforts so that we daily run to him for exactly what our hearts need. See, many of you were here when Sarah and I had our first miscarriage after our second child. Not long after that, we became pregnant again, and two months into that pregnancy, we thought Sarah was miscarrying once more. And so as we sat in an emergency room on our own in California, I considered what got us through the first miscarriage. And it was, people were praying, and people were caring for us, but me, as this nickel counter and widget mover, I said there were three things. There was a doctor who cared for Sarah and removed the baby. We had a medical savings fund with which we could pay the deductible for our insurance. And I looked at the pain and confusion we were experiencing in this emergency room and I said, we're gonna be okay. We get the treatment, we pay the bills, and we get back on with our life. But the doctor came in and gave us the most devastatingly wonderful news we've ever heard, that I've ever heard. (laughs) and that's that the baby was still alive. But it was surrounded by a mass of blood, which if it started to bleed, the body could think that it was miscarrying and it could abort the baby. And the doctors looked at my wonderful savings account and my great insurance, and they said, we can do nothing for it. God in his mercy pulled back the riches of my heart and exposed that in that emergency room, I was the one saying, who is the Lord? I had trusted in the gifts of God, but not in the goodness of God. So for the next seven months, God humbled us. We prayed every day. Many of you prayed every day that God would give us the daily bread, that he would provide for us what Agur says, that what is needful to make it not into eternity, but to make it to bedtime. And in his mercy, Ellie, named after the Greek word for mercy, Eliea, was born that December. I know many believers whose stories of God pulling back the deceitful veil of our riches end in a different place than that, but I also know many believers who, regardless of what the conclusion was, join David after the death of his child and says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The process of preaching wisdom of the gospel to ourselves doesn't mean that after we feel, consider, and believe, the hardships go away. But what it means is that God, in his infinite kindness to you, wants to take you by your weak knees and your feeble hands, and he wants to say in the midst of it, I am here. I am working in ways where if I told you, you couldn't even imagine It means that we'll try to continue to see God as faithful in the midst of our storms. Why? Because we have seen Christ on the storm of the cross. We know the end of the story. We know 
The empty tomb provides a promise that rises us up when we feel dead. We know the promise of eternity. When we feel weary and we think we can't go on, we look and say, it was never about your strength, but about the strength of Jesus. We know God will never leave us. He's given us the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And when we don't feel like taking our emotions to the Lord, it cries out, Paul says, inside of our hearts and says, Abba, Father, It reminds us, Jesus says in John 17, the Holy Spirit comes to declare to us the things that are his, which means when we are weak, weary, lonely, and wounded, what are we reminded with by the blood of Jesus shed for us? That every word of the Lord proves true, that he is a shield for those who take refuge in him. This is our hope that the gospel considers your frame, knows the brokenness of pain in this world, pain for which Jesus came to die to promise a day of restoration. He says, in the midst of it, hold fast to my word. Do not forsake it. Be comfortable with the pruning because the greatest thing we know is we know the name of the Lord and of his son, surely we know. And that is the hope for the Christian. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you humbly. There are few prayers more foreign to our broken flesh than a prayer which makes us reliant upon you. And so, Lord, that is why we appreciate your sovereign hand, which humbles us, even if we're unwilling to make that prayer. Lord, I pray for those who find themselves in this situation of being weary, that they would run to you, that they would look to Christ on the cross and know that God has not forgotten his promises, that God is not static, that God is not far from us, but that he has drawn near and he is working to restore us to all things through the blood of Jesus. Lord, we pray all this in your name. Amen.